Well, the Sabbath law says uh, in Exodus that you should not do work on the Sabbath, which means on, on Saturdays the Jews were not to do any work. Now, that tradition has been, uh, that stipulation, that law has been fulfilled in Christ, but the Jews who rejected Christ as the Messiah still keep that law um, to the letter, uh, kind of. Um, they try to keep it to the letter, and so that has caused... Uh, you know, a lot of difficulties because in the modern age, um, over the thousands of years since that law was, the simple law was don't do work on the Sabbath, has turned into what the, the lawyers, the um, experts in the law over time, developed into a, a very complicated Sabbath code. And one of the things in the Sabbath code is that you cannot carry an item from a private space to a public space because that would be constitutional constituted as work, so you're not allowed to do that. Um, but how do you live in this day if you can't carry anything with you? And uh, one of the questions that came up um, on a website that I was reading about a, a rabbi answering questions to his congregation, he was asked, this is a question, I'd like to know if there's any way I can carry my house key to the synagogue and back on Shabbat. The typical trick of hiding it under the mat just doesn't feel secure to me. And so this is a legitimate question from a congregation member. How do I carry my key with me to go to synagogue if I can't take anything with me um, from a private space to a public space? So the rabbi answers. Firstly, he says, um, his name is Rabbi David uh, Rosenfeld, David Rosenfeld. And uh, he first says, well, check that your city doesn't have an eruv. Well, an eruv is... um, a wire that you can put from your house around, you know, like the trees around your house or whatever, and maybe even your neighbor's house, and then that all becomes part of your house, and then you and your neighbor can walk to each other and carry whatever you need. Well, you can actually make that wire as big as your whole neighborhood, and then all the neighbors who are Jews can do that. And they've done it to the point that now entire cities have an eruv, including Manhattan's maruv. Manhattan has um, an eruv made out of uh, fishing wire. So if you ever go to Manhattan in New York, you can see that the whole borough is encircled by fishing wire in the, on the telephone poles. And it costs $150,000 a year to maintain because every single Thursday um, before the, the, the Sabbath comes on the Friday, a, a rabbi goes around the entire city and checks that it is unbroken. And if it is broken, he has to call out a power company with a cherry picker that goes up, and the rabbi has to be the one to connect it. So he goes up and does that. And so um, in, they started in 1999, and for 20 years, it, it was always functioning on the Sabbath. So all Orthodox Jews in Manhattan go onto the website and will check that their roof is intact so that they can carry stuff as much as they want because the whole of Manhattan is their house. It's all a private space because of this wire. So that's what he means when he says, check that your city doesn't have an eruv. But if it doesn't, he goes on, it is forbidden to carry an item as small as a key on Shabbat. However, there's an old trick for doing so, making the key part of your clothes. The idea behind this is as follows. Although it is forbidden to carry in public on Shabbat, a person is obviously allowed to wear his clothes out of doors. Walking about wearing clothes is not carrying, since the clothes are considered part of the person. This extends to the items that are clearly subordinate to one's clothes, such as a belt, suspenders, safety pin, shoelaces. Even though you are not exactly wearing such things, they are helping your clothes stay on properly 
you know, so considered um, part of the clothes. And then he quotes the part of the Jewish law over time where he gets that from. And then he says, this would extend to a key as well if you wear it. How does one wear a key? There are two common methods. One is to fashion a tie clip out of a key in which the top part of the clip is actually a key. Note that this would only work if your tie would be loose otherwise. If you're wearing a sweater or vest which holds down your tie, then the clip would be serving no purpose and could not be considered part of your clothes. And he cites where that law comes from. So that's true. Or if you're a woman, you don't wear a tie. Or if you're a man wearing a jersey and so or a sweater, so you don't need that. There's a second method. The second common method is to use your key as a belt buckle. This would involve removing the tongue of your belt, attaching your key in its place. Other similar methods might be replacing the buckle with the key, attaching a string to the other side, and threading the string through the hole at the top of the key to fasten your belt. As you can see, such methods require some ingenuity. Note that such contraptions will typically have to be fashioned before Shabbat, since creating them may involve other forms of Shabbat labor, such as gluing or tying, which of course you can't do. Note also that these methods would generally only work for a single key. I've seen people carry a, key, uh, carry a ring with several keys attached to it, in which one of the keys was holding their tie down. This is not correct. The entire addition to your clothes must be functioning as part of them. So this is a rabbi answering a genuine question from one of his uh, congregants, and that's, that's his answer. And notice how, like, as he even admits, you have to have some ingenuity, you have to have some creativity, and yet there's very specific, this counts, this doesn't count, and you sort of ask, is that really what Moses meant when he said, don't do any work on the Sabbath, that you would come up with this? Well, this is what we're going to see in our text tonight. You can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. We're going to see the difference between Pharisees and lawyers. Now, these are not lawyers' uh, attorneys, or civil or criminal, but these are experts in the Jewish law, and their job was to come up with creative ways of applying the law, just like that rabbi did that we just read about. So we're going to see Jesus. Last week we saw how, or last time we were here, we saw Jesus um, condemning the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. Uh, we saw six symptoms of a Pharisee. One is that they have hidden agendas, because this guy invites Jesus over, but it's just to catch him out, not just to be hospitable. Secondly, they hold traditions above Scripture. He's flabbergasted. Jesus doesn't wash his hands in a ritual way before eating, even though that's not stipulated in Scripture. Thirdly, they are concerned with appearances. Fourthly, they major on minor issues. Fifthly, they love to be honored by men. And sixthly, they deliberately deceive people. So that's what we saw Jesus talk about last week. So maybe we should just catch ourselves up there. Um, verse 37, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools, do not, did not he who made the outside Make the inside also, but give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean to you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. 
these you ought to have done without ne neglecting the others. See, they major on minors there. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the bare seat in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing. So that's where we stopped last week, but now we carry on. And one of the lawyers in verse 45 asked him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also, us lawyers. Because basically they're, they're recognizing themselves in that diagnosis as well. And they're like, wait a minute, we do those things too. And he said, woe to you lawyers also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds that your, of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. And so we're going to carry on with our self-diagnosis of being a hypocrite. Five telltale symptoms of hypocrisy so that we can continue the self-diagnosis. So we did the, the first six last week. Hypocrites, one, reinvent God's rules. Two, rationalize why you are an exception to those rules. Three, repeat your forefathers' mistakes. Four, remove access to the truth from others. And five, refuse to repent. So there's 11 in total over the, past, over the two weeks. So firstly, let's look at one of the first telltale symptoms that you're a hypocrite, that you're a Pharisee, is that hypocrites reinvent God's rules. So in verse 45, when he says, one of the lawyers answered him, um, saying, teacher, in these things you insult us also, I think maybe the guy thought Jesus would back off and say, no, 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 not you lawyers. I'm just focusing on the Pharisees. But Jesus says, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. Now, what, he, what Jesus is getting at here, this, this point, they reinvent God's rules. God's rules are there for God's holiness and the benefit of his people. So when God makes the rule in the Old Testament that you were to keep the Sabbath holy and not do any work on it, it was to reflect God's holiness, to show your trust in him to provide for you, that you can you know, you, you make your, if you're a carpenter, you make your chairs six days of the week, but you take one day off and just trust that it'll be okay, that you can take one day off every week and God will still provide for you. You don't have to squeeze every cent out of every day. You need to rest and trust God. But also not only reflect the holiness of God in that, but also Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We need a break. God knows that. And so he programmed into his law this legislation that helped people all take a break together. Because if everybody knows that you have to take a break and you all take it on the same day, then nobody looks down on the person who's not working. This is why in, in Sweden, for example, it is 
mandatory to take a certain amount of vacation. I think it's six weeks of vacation. And the whole country takes it at the same time. They all take it in June. So companies all shut down. That way you don't feel like the bad guy taking six weeks off while your friends are working on the project that you're slacking off on. No, you have to do it and everyone does it together. So that was the idea. But the point was it, was, it wasn't to be a burden. It was to be a blessing. But the scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyers, what they did is they said, well, let's, let's make sure that we, we aren't sinning, and so we're going to start making rules. And so they, they came up with these, these rules that became burdens on people. Instead of just saying, take a day off and do day off things, things that you don't do during the week, things that you do that's just your day off. Instead of that, they made these laws. So... The Old Testament law has 613 laws in it. The Talmud, which is a written commentary on the law by the Jews, has over 6,000 rules. So they had 10 rules for every one that God made, making it way more burdensome. The Talmud is divided into six orders, divided into 63 tractates, and divided into chapters. Rules were minutely and obsessively detailed. I've told you some of them before, like um, in the order of the Moed, the feasts, in the tractate of the Sabbath, it says, you may carry what lays, weighs less than a dried fig in your hand, but it may not change hands, nor may you put it down in a public place if you lifted it from a private place, or vice versa. So that's what we heard about earlier with the key. In Moed 10, verses 3 to 5, it says, two people may carry any burden which normally takes one person, or you may carry it in a way that you wouldn't usually in the week, for example, on your foot or in your mouth. I mean, this is just burdensome that you have to not only know the 613 laws of God, but the 6,000 laws of man as well and have to figure all of this out. And this is a common symptom of hypocrites. They want to add to God's law. We often just call it legalism in churches. And, and I've, I've had to deal with this in my ministry. Sometimes somebody will be joining the church or they're interested in joining the church and they'll ask me, and I've been asked this question, what's your church's rules on dancing? What's your church's rules on smoking? What is your church's rules on drinking? And then I, I always have to tell them, our church's rules are the rules of the Bible. We have one rule, don't sin. I mean, if you want to know what that means, read your Bible. Those are our rules. We don't have a policy. We're not like, well, well, now that you become a member, you've got the Bible and you've got our little handbook with all of our rules. You know what the rule is about dancing? Don't sin. So you're not going to go strip dancing. You know, there's certain dances you're not going to do. Don't dance with another man's wife in a way that you, you, know, you wouldn't dance with your sister. That kind of stuff. We don't have to make those rules. The rule is don't sin. But some churches like to make those rules. And I, I just don't think that's right. I think it becomes burdensome. And people become uh, very concerned with keeping the church's rules rather than being in love with Jesus and wanting to serve him and wanting to obey him and wanting to be holy for him. And so this is a symptom of hypocrites. I've once been told by somebody, <laughs> I got into a discussion with a person who wanted it. This was at my church in South Africa person wanted to join the church, but he asked what the church's rules were on drinking. And I said, we don't have any 
rules on drinking except the one in the Bible in Ephesians 5.18 that says do not get drunk with wine. So the rule is don't get drunk. He's like, well, in this day and age and with all the alcoholism out there and all the blah, 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 I don't think any Christians should drink. And I, I said, that's a very valid and very wise decision for you to make for yourself, but we're not going to make that a rule for the church because it's not in the Bible. And he said, well, it should be. It's not a rule in the Bible. Well, it should be. Why don't I just write it in the back of my Bible and I'll just tell everyone in the church to write in the back of their Bible. I mean, what do you say to that? I was just like, well, I'm just the messenger. I just tell you what God says. I, I'm not allowed to add to that. In fact, 1 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul said that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. You see, there's pride that comes from having rules that you keep that other people don't keep. You think of yourself as more holy than them. And the Pharisees, you remember the Pharisee that prayed, I fast twice a week, unlike that tax collector. He, he thought he was better because he fasted twice a week and the tax collector didn't. But th is there a law in the Bible that says you have to fast twice a week? No, there isn't. So he made a rule. He kept the rule, and now he's better than the people that don't keep the rule that he made. The parameters of these Pharisees gerrymander around their own preferences to concoct a homebrew of false religion. I've, I've met Christians that have like these rules. There are the, the, the rules that exclude nose rings, but include homeschooling. They exclude tattoos, but they include tithing they exclude drums from church but they include old hymns but not contemporary ones and it's like you just want to ask the person like where do you get these rules it seems so crystal clear in his mind that drums are bad hymns are good contemporary songs are bad you know nose rings are bad and tattoos are bad it's like where are you coming up with all of these rules it seems so simple to them. It seems so clear, but it's just, it's not in the Bible. And so they just assume everyone else is wrong. So they reinvent God's rule. Secondly, they rationalize. If, if you're a hypocrite, one of the things you're going to do is you're going to rationalize why you are an exception. He said to them in verse 46, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So what they would do is they would have these rules and they make these rules. But because they're the experts, they get really creative about making loopholes that they know about. That, that make them an exception to the rules. So one example is given in Mark 7, for example. Um, you know, the concept of Corban. Corban. Is a name that Christians call their kids, um, Corbin, because it means dedicated to God. So they had this concept of Corbin, where if you said something was dedicated to God, then technically it wasn't yours anymore. And that's what parents mean when they name their kid Corbin. This is not my child, this is the Lord's child, right? So, but what they would do is they would say, I'm going to call all of my wealth Corban. So my wealth is not mine now, it's the Lord's. Now, why would somebody want to do that? Well, so that they didn't have to use it to look after their aging parents. 
And so in Mark 7, 10, it says, Moses said, honor your father and mother. So that's the law, honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, well, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever um, you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. So what they were doing is saying, yes, you must honor your mother and father. And one of the ways you can honor your mother and father is by supporting them financially in their old age if they can't afford to. And the way around that is to say, well, I've dedicated all of my money to God. So I really wish, mom, I could pay for your uh, medical bill, but I don't have any money. Oh, well, you're driving a Mercedes-Benz. Well, yeah, but that's the Lord's Mercedes-Benz that I, I buy with the Lord's money. And my whole bank account's the Lord's. And I could, I could never give the Lord's money to you because it's dedicated to the Lord. And Jesus says, so you've just made a rule that, that negates the law of God. And you think that you're doing a good thing because you're keeping your rule, but it's the actual opposite of what the Bible says that you should do. And so these lawyers make life hard to bear for some people, but they've got these loopholes for themselves. Um, I, I knew of a church, well, I didn't know of the church, but uh, one of the elders in my previous church had been a pastor of a church where what they would do is when you became a member in the membership process, the elders would come to your house and they would look around your house and they would inspect it and, and couple of things. One is they would make sure that everything's in order. If there's something that you shouldn't have in there, they would get rid of it. Um, like one example was they found a pack of playing cards at someone's house. And I was like, well, you can't have these playing cards because, you know, gambling's a sin. Actually, the Bible doesn't say that. It says covetousness is a sin. And this person was like, oh, but I use those cards to play with my, my grandkids and that it's not gambling. It's like, no, 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 no. We'll, they confiscated the cards. The other thing that the elders do in the inspection visit is that they determine how much you should be tithing based on your lifestyle. And they just tell you, this is how much you have to give, and then you, you put in a debit order, you know, automatic draft for that amount. But what he said is, nobody inspects the elders' houses. The elders inspect the church's houses. Nobody's inspecting the elders' house and telling him what he needs to tithe. It's the same thing here. They, they've... they've they make rules for other people, becomes burdensome for other people, but then they can skirt it themselves. A third issue with these hypocrites is they repeat their forefathers' mistakes. In verse 47, he says, Woe to you who build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. He means your ancestors. So you're witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them, you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God says, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. This is a very interesting accusation Jesus is making here. You see, these people would, as part of their religion and part of their external show of how they honored the, the, the memory of the prophets in scriptures, they would build these elaborate tombs or monuments to the prophets. And if you go to Israel today, you can even see archaeological sites where they have these, these um, like there's the, the tomb of David that you can go and visit. It's not that David's actually buried there, but it's 
they called it the Tomb of David, but it's like a, it's a monument. And so they would make these monuments to the various prophets in that, but Jesus is, saying, is noticing the irony in this because, well, who killed those prophets? It was the Jews that killed the prophets. <laughs> they persecuted the prophets. So like um, we've been hearing from Pastor Will on a Sunday evening about Jeremiah. Jeremiah is preaching against Judah. And, and they persecute him. They arrest him. They throw him in the cistern. Eventually they kill him. They killed Isaiah as well because he was, he's, he's preaching repentance to them. And so Jesus is saying, you are people. You're not repenting. You're just like your ancestors. They kill the prophets and you just finish the job by building the, the tomb for them. So he's, he's kind of turning around. They think that they're honoring these prophets, and he's like saying, no, you're joining in what your ancestors did with this external side, because internally you're not honoring the message of the prophets. So they're rejecting the New Testament prophets as well. They, were, they rejected John the Baptist, and they were rejecting Jesus. And he's saying, you're doing exactly the same thing your ancestors did. God sends somebody to you with the truth, and you kill them. Now, generations later, oh, you build a big monument to them. But you're not, you're not honoring the message. And Jesus knew, of course, that they were going to do exactly the same to him. And even while he's telling them this truth, they get upset with him. And they end up plotting to kill him. It's like today people still have, you know, there's a political movement about how can they take prayer out of public schools and take the Ten Commandments out of the courthouses and all those kinds of things. And what they're concerned about often is the external sign that God is being represented in the courthouses and the schools, but they're, they're not actually dealing with, well, what are those Ten Commandments saying? And are we concerned with people actually keeping the Ten Commandments or just having a monument to the Ten Commandments? This is what Jesus is getting at. It's not about the monument. It's not about the external sign. It's not about the right to do something. It's like, aren't we concerned about the actual heart here? That's what the prophets were concerned about, the ones that your parents killed, your ancestors. And so he talks about this from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. So, I mean, pop quiz. Who was the first martyr? Abel. Abel was killed by Cain because his... Abel's sacrifice was acceptable to God, and Cain's was unacceptable to God, and so Cain got angry at the righteousness of his brother and killed him. So it's kind of like the A to Z, although it doesn't work in Hebrew because that's not how the Hebrew alphabet works. But, but Abel, all the way to Zechariah. Zechariah is the last martyr of the Old Testament. You're thinking, I don't know about that. You have to remember that the Hebrew Bible is arranged in a different order than the English Bible. Our Bible ends with the, the 12 minor prophets in Malachi. Um, but the Hebrew Bible ends with 2 Chronicles. So the last martyr in 2 Chronicles was Zechariah. So in their Bible, he, so Jesus is just using as a, his point was from, from the, the first verses in Genesis to the last verses in Chronicles and everything in between, your ancestors are responsible for the A to Z of the prophet killing. And so now he's warning, Jesus is warning them that by rejecting God's prophets, you are siding with the team that killed them. If you reject God's prophet, meaning himself, you're siding with the people that killed the prophets. You're on their team. 
And so you become culpable for what they did as well. That's why verse 51 says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. If you could read that story, that's what happened with them. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Um, because verse 50 said, it'll be charged against this generation. So if you think of it as um, like during wartime, if there's two countries that are at war with one another and a citizen of the one country sells state secrets to the other one as a spy, if you get caught, what happens to you? You're charged with treason and the penalty is death. So this country is trying to kill the enemies, but you've now sided with the enemies, so you get their punishment by being executed. And that's what he's saying here, is the enemies of God's prophets are the ones that were killing them. If you're siding with them, saying that they were right, then you get the same punishment that they do. So this generation that's alive now that's busy rejecting me is going to get the same punishment. You deserve the same punishment that the Jews got in the Old Testament for rejecting the prophets because Isaiah would come, um, uh, Jeremiah would come, these prophets would come and they would preach repentance and the people wouldn't repent. And so God judged them with famine and with war and with exile and all these things. And you're siding with the bad guys when you reject me. Now, how do, how do we do that? How, what's a good application for us? Well, when you excuse your sin by making it your parents' fault because of their sin, what you're doing is you're actually you're endorsing their sin. So, for example, if you say, I'm sorry I got angry at you, I learned this behavior because my dad was really an angry person. My dad used to get angry and beat me and abuse me, and so that's why I got aggressive with you and I slapped you. You're doing the same thing. You're doing the same sin as your forefather, and you're, you're, you're siding with the enemy. And you think that you're saying, well, yeah, what they did was really bad. What I did was just because they did it. Yeah, but you're doing the same thing. When people say, yeah, I'm an alcoholic, but I inherited that from my parents. Or, of course I drink a lot. I'm Irish. You know? <laughs> or, uh, of course I get passionate about things like that. I'm Latino. You know, it's like, it's, it's just how my people are. Well, that's what, that's what was happening here. Yeah, your people were sinning. So the fact that you're okay with that and say that that's just a mark of my people, my, my forefathers, you're going to get the same punishment. It's still sin. What they did was sin, and it's still sin when you do it. In fact, you're perpetuating their sin by siding with them, and you're incurring their guilt. So don't repeat your forefathers' mistakes. There's, there's, there's no shame in saying, I was raised to do this, but then I came to know the Lord, and now I don't do that anymore. Yeah, I was born into this type of culture, or this kind of family, or this is, this is how my people viewed things. But I'm a new creature in Christ. Now my people are Christians, and we don't do these things. Fourthly, they remove access to the truth. So they reinvent God's rules, rationalize why they're an exception, they repeat their forefathers' mistakes, they remove access 
to the truth. In verse 52, he says, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. So he's using a metaphor here of entering, presumably entering into the kingdom of God, into salvation. Look what he's accusing them of. You've taken away the key of knowledge of how to get into heaven. You didn't enter, and worse than that, you're actually hindering others from entering as well. It's bad enough when a person rejects Jesus and says, I don't believe this stuff. I'm not going to go to church. I don't even believe there's a God. That's bad enough. What's worse is, I'm not going to let my kids go to church. In fact, I'm going to tell my coworker who goes to church how stupid he is for believing in that stuff. I'm going to sow seeds of doubt in his life. I'm going to try to get him to not go to church. It's one thing that I'm on my way to hell. It's another thing when you're saying, and I'm taking others there with me. That's what these people were doing. Taking away the key of knowledge. You didn't enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. The problem with people who reinvent religion is they smudge the lens so that other people can't see it. They obscure the truth. They stop people from being saved. And so in their attempt to add to God's rules and create this whole religion that, that they concocted over these generations, they now had this false religion that stopped people from getting saved. Because people look at that religion and they're like, I can't live up to that. I'm not even going to try. But that's not God's requirement. So they get in the way of people wanting to please God. Because when you teach people that, that the way we, we work in our sort of milieu is if the, the spiritual leader teaches the people that when you read the Bible, you can't understand it without an expert telling you what it means. What you're doing is you're taking the key of knowledge away from the people. So hopefully, if you've been here for time in our church, I hope you've recognized that that's the opposite of what we try to do here. I hope you never get the impression when I preach a sermon that you could never see what I found in the Bible. You just need to come and trust me. Hopefully, if you sit under this preaching for a period of time, you will start to learn inductively. So anytime you read the Bible... Or anytime you hear a sermon from anybody, your brain will automatically start doing what I've been training you to do just by example, which is if you go sit and you listen to a sermon and the pastor opens the Bible and reads a verse and he starts talking about something, hopefully what will start happening after a while, you will develop this instinct. I wonder what the context of that verse was that he's now talking about. I wonder if it actually means what he's saying. Let me go and have a look. Let me read the verses above it. Let me read the next verses. Let me see what, what's going on there. So the context. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. I always start with the context. And then, okay, let's, let's look at the words. Let's look at the syntax. Let's see what does it actually say. What do other verses say? What are some cross-references? Is this something that meshes with the theology of the whole Bible? So you're not just taking one verse out of context and building a whole theology, but it's something that's called the principle of the analogy of the faith. 
nothing you say can contradict anything else in Scripture. So you'll, you, you probably don't even know that. But if you go to a church that does expository preaching, you are probably more equipped to preach a sermon and evaluate a sermon than people who go to seminary if it's a liberal seminary and they don't believe in the Word of God. So what these people were doing is they were removing the key saying, I know when you read Exodus it says just don't work on a Saturday, but what we're telling you is you can't even carry a key unless you turn it into a tie clip. So you need an expert. And they were removing the key of truth. In our day and age, this is mostly still done by the Catholic Church. The concept of a laity and a clergy. You've heard that term? Clergy? Sometimes when I do a hospital visit, there's parking spots for the clergy. And I only park there if I really have to. Because <laughs> I'm like, I don't want anyone seeing me get out of the car thinking I'm clergy. Because so, what clergy means, as opposed to laity, laity are like the lay people, the people who haven't trained, the non-experts. Um, the clergy is the people in the kind of the elite spiritual class. And what the Catholic Church teaches is you need the clergy to get to God. You have to have a priest. You can't, give, you can't take communion without a priest. You can't be baptized without a priest. You can't, you, can't take the mat, you can't be forgiven. You can't do confession. You have to confess to a priest, et cetera, et cetera. So you take the priest, the clergy out of it, and the laity have no access to God. So if the Pope says birth control is wrong, well, the Pope says that there's a purgatory. Well, the Pope says that Mary contributes to your salvation as a co-redemptrix. Then us lowly lay people, we just have to accept that. And what do we know? We don't know what he knows. And so those implications are chilling. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. You know, one of the most terrifying moments in my life it was while I was being saved, that time in my life when I was in college. And I had always thought, whenever I had any doubts about what I believed was, maybe this, what I'm believing isn't right or wrong, I would assure myself like this. I would say, well, the priest told me this. So if it's wrong, God's going to hold the priest accountable, not me. One of the things I learned when I started attending a Bible study where preachers preaching the word is that's not how it works. On Judgment Day, God doesn't say, well, look, you did completely the wrong thing. You had entirely the wrong religion, but it was the guy that told you his fault, so you're good. He doesn't do that. You are responsible for your own salvation. You need to stand before God. He's going to hold you accountable for your behavior and your beliefs. And if you're sitting under bad teaching and you know and you don't do anything about it, that's your fault. And some people are sitting under bad teaching and they don't know it. But guess what? They have access to the scriptures. It's still their fault. There, there's none of this, well, I didn't know. I didn't know. Nobody told me. God's going to say, you speak English? There's English Bibles all over. Why don't you read one? I mean, I don't know what he's going to say, but he's certainly not going to say, yeah, it's okay, I don't mind that you sinned all this time against me. It was someone else's fault. God's going to say, yeah, the person who told you that was wrong. He's in hell too. Now let's talk about you. So this is what was so bad about these Pharisees. This is why Jesus, whenever he speaks to sinners, like wretched, 
wretched sinners, like the tax collectors and the prostitutes. He was always so gentle with them, so merciful, so tender. They were drawn to him. He was called a friend of sinners. He didn't get angry at them. But the Pharisees, he's scathing when he talks to these Pharisees. He's busy yelling at the Pharisees and the lawyers say, well, sounds like you're accusing us too. Woe to you, lawyers. <laughs> and he just, he, what's he so angry about? That they were taking other people to hell with them. That's why he says, it's better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea than you would lead one of these little ones astray. It's not like the little ones are immune. Oh, well, they're kids and they grew up in a home that taught them the wrong stuff. It's not their fault. It's their parents' fault. No, those kids will be judged for their sin. And it's your fault. So they remove access to the truth. Fifthly, and finally, they refuse to repent. Verse 53. And as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. This is the worst trait of a Pharisee. The worst trait of a hypocrite is that they won't repent they double down. I don't like what you're saying. I'm going to try to get you to say something to get you in trouble. Rather than just listen to what the person says. This is their most serious symptom. See, repentance is a panacea for all ailments. Repentance is what fixes everything about you. I've said it this way. I don't know. I'm, I'm not... I don't, I don't know if it's a controversial thing. I've never ever heard anyone else say it. But to me, it makes sense to say there's, there's only one good thing about sin. And that's that you can repent of it. There's nothing good about sin. It will drag you to hell. It will ruin your relationships. It will ruin you. It will ruin your relationship with the Lord. But there's, there's only one thing that, that's good about sin is that it's not the end of the story. You can repent. You can just call it sin and turn your back on it and ask forgiveness and be forgiven. What you can't be forgiven of is the refusal to repent. And so what this looks like in our lives is if somebody comes to you and points out a sin in your life, let's say anger, you have outbursts of anger, and you say, Yes, I know I get angry, and I know I shouldn't have these outbursts, but as soon as you put the butt in, you've, lost, you've, you've, missed the whole, you've missed your opportunity to repent. And usually it's something like this. But you have no idea what this person's done to me. You have no idea how hard it was or how long it had been going on before I snapped. But I had low blood sugar, and I hadn't eaten. I was hangry. Um, yeah, I know I was angry, but... This is what I was taught from my parents. Yeah, I was angry, but it was justified by what they, whatever it is. People, uh, yeah, I was gossiping, but 
what I said about them was true. Yeah, I stole that money, but the people I stole it from had stolen it too. I needed it more than them. Whatever it is, fill in the blank. Any sin, as soon as you say, yeah, I, I recognize it's sin, but there was a reason why it was okay in my case. Or I know it wasn't okay, but there's, there's something you need to understand about it that minimizes how bad it is. Listen, it's bad enough to take you to hell. There's no minimizing that. And so they refuse to repent. Here these people have Jesus telling them, you've got these issues, you've got these six symptoms, you've got these other symptoms. You are in trouble and you're leading others astray. God is angry. He is going to judge you. He's going to bring the judgment upon you that your forefathers earned by killing his prophets. And instead of them thinking, oh my goodness, what have we done? How do we fix this? They say, I can't believe he said that stuff about me. Let's kill him. Now we've got to find a way to get rid of him. There's just no hope for people like that. There really isn't. And so in a moment of awful and perverse irony, they end up exhibiting the exact symptom that Jesus just accused them of by wanting to kill him. Your forefathers rejected your, your ancestors, rejected God's prophets, and they were guilty, and you're going to do the same thing. And so what did they do? Oh, I can't believe he said that. Let's reject him. That's like when you say to a person, you're very argumentative. No, I'm not. Well, that's argumentative. No, it isn't. You know, it's like, my proof is you. That's what's happening. So the definition of a Christian is not a person who doesn't sin. Those people don't exist yet. In heaven will be those people. The definition of a Christian is not somebody who doesn't sin. It's a person who always repents of their sin. See, non-Christian sin and Christian sin, the difference is Christians repent. That's what secures forgiveness from God. To confess your sin simply means to say the same thing God says about your sin, that it's sinful, that it's wrong, that you deserve punishment, that he's holy, that you've offended him. That's what it means to confess your sin, to say, what I did was wrong. Somebody says, yeah, you, you stole that money. Yeah, I did. It was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. No but, no minimizing, no rationalizing, no comparing it, just... Yeah, you're right. That's confession. It's wrong. Repentance is, and because it's wrong, I'm not going to do it anymore. That's repentance. And that's what Christians do. So if you're looking for a little script to practice, because sometimes your knee-jerk reaction is to, yes, but. Yeah, I know, it's, I know it was bad, but. Rather than use the word but, use the word yikes. Yikes is a word I use when I suddenly realize something. Yikes, I forgot my whatever. Sermon at home. <laughs> yikes. If somebody says to you, you sinned in this way, just say yikes. Just realize you're right. What do I do? That, that's the heart of a Christian. 
yikes, I've really messed up. What do I do? How do I fix this? And part of that is just realizing the way you do it is you just ask God for forgiveness and stop doing it. And that might involve getting accountability. It might involve getting help. It might involve paying back something that you've done or trying to undo something that you've done. Or if you gossip about somebody, you go and ask their forgiveness and tell the person. What you, there may be some follow-up in that, but the, it all starts with the hard attitude of, I'm confessing that what I did was wrong, and now I, I want to stop doing it. Pause, concede that the person might be right. And if you're not sure if they're right or not, somebody, sometimes people accuse me of stuff, and I'm like, I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know if that's really sin. Was that really sin? You know. So rather than say, well, I've already decided that it's not, ask for examples. So somebody says, you know, you sin in this way. Yikes, okay. Um, can you give me some examples? And then they'll list things. And the more they list, the more you think about what does the Bible say about those things. And then you can determine, yeah, it was sin or it wasn't. Like if somebody says, well, I saw you carrying something heavy on the Sabbath. Okay. Let's look at the Bible together and let's see if that was actually sin. If the person says, you know, you had an outburst of anger, really, can you give me an example? Well, yeah, I saw your wife say something, you turned and started yelling at her and slapped her in the face. Yeah, you're right, I remember that now. Yeah, that's probably, I, I, I concede that that's sin. You know? like, so, so sometimes you have to evaluate. I'm not saying just always admit to everything. Sometimes you have to think about it, but ask questions and have your first instinct be, I want to see if I've sinned. Because if I have sinned, I can repent of it. So they reinvent God's rules, they rationalize why they're an exception, they repeat their forefathers' mistakes, they remove access to the truth from others, they refuse to repent. There is a little Pharisee in all of us. So strive for transparency, strive for humility and repentance, and trust that Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross is the cure for all of your hypocrisy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this reminder. Um, it can be challenging, and it's always just sobering to remember how sinful we are and how much we do sin, and how dangerous it is for us to not admit that. And so I pray that we would learn from these Pharisees and these lawyers, and pray that you would give us soft hearts, that you would convict us of our sin and lead us into repentance. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we got a couple of minutes for Q&A. And I had one that somebody asked. The ladies' Bible study. Somebody asked me about the ladies. In the ladies' Bible study in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, they were talking about the passage that's where Paul says that women are to remain silent in churches and ask their husbands at home. And so the question was, is it okay for ladies to ask questions during this Q&A? And the answer is yes, and this is why. Firstly, this is not a full gathering of the church in a church service. We, we pray, we read the scriptures, and then I close in prayer, and then I open it up to questions, even to non-members. So it's not a disruption of the the worship service. And in 1 Corinthians 14, that's what Paul is warning against, that the worship service should be done in order. And it should not be disrupted. The only time the worship service should be disrupted, if the, 
the preacher's preaching something that he shouldn't, and he needs to be interrupted and removed, which hopefully never happens here. But who does that task belong to? The elders of the church the, or the mature men in the church. So if the elders, the mature men in the church, are accepting what's being said from the pulpit and their wives get up and try to stop the preacher, what does that make their husbands look like? Yeah, a bunch of idiots. Yeah. So that's what Paul's talking about. It's like, listen, if you've got a problem with something from the pulpit, but your husband seems okay with it, then you need to talk to him about that. And if there's a problem, he needs to follow it up with the preacher. Now, I think the emphasis in that command is at home. Because the whole point is don't disrupt the public gathering. You do this at home because some women don't have husbands. But the idea is that if you've got a problem with what's being taught, you don't interrupt the orderliness of the worship service. You deal with this at home. You ask the people you're supposed to ask at home. And, and if, if the mature men in the church are not you know, um, stopping the, the teaching, then it's not up to the woman in the church to take that role. Does that make sense? I think there was another one more point I wanted to make that I haven't heard. Yes. And that's okay. You, I've invited. Oh, that's the other. Th that's the other point is that I've, I'm inviting questions. That's another thing, by the way. I'm inviting questions, um, which is very different from being interrupted in the middle of the service with somebody asking questions and, and confronting me. Yes. Yes. Okay. It's, a, it's not an assembly of the gathered church in the, in the way that Paul's saying in the worship service. Yeah. Don't interrupt the wor worship service. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the main point there is that the, the questioning is being invited. It's not an interruption. It's in order. And if a person is asking a question in a way that is disruptive... Like sometimes, um, let's say a person's like, um, the question is, how can you be such an idiot to think this about that passage? What a loser you are. And this church is completely out to lunch that they believe that. Then I am the one with the microphone and I will shut that down. And if, if that isn't shut down, that is a disruption of the orderliness of the gathering. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah, so a good question. So what if a person doesn't, um, a single lady doesn't have a husband at home to ask? How do you ask somebody at home the follow-up question? Well, you, you ask who you can ask. So there should be elders in the church or friends in the church that will be able to help with that. In our particular case, I, I don't consider it an affront to my teaching with people asking clarifying questions. So I just invite people, ask me, call me, send me an email. Um, what Paul's talking about there in 1 Corinthians is, you have to remember as well, when women were not included in the worship service, now suddenly they're included in the Christian service because the Christian churches treated men and women equally in the service. Um, the men knew from synagogue not to interrupt the preaching unless there's heresy. So the instruction is to women to kind of catch up with what their men already know is you don't interrupt the guy preaching, you know. Um, 
unless there's a problem. And you actually see that with Jesus because Jesus is busy preaching when he says, and this is fulfilled in your presence. And the men in the synagogue rejected that message. And what did they do? They got up and forcibly removed him. Well, they were wrong because he was Jesus. And he was right. But that was their role. Now, if the women all got up, stormed in and removed them, everyone would be like, but the men are okay with this. What are the women doing? You know, so it's a disruption of the service there. Okay. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I've been asked that question before. So why in Leviticus 12 is a woman giving birth to a male um, need to quarantine, um, well, ritual purification for six days, and for a woman it was, uh, for a female child it was, how many days? Yeah, more days. And, and I've, I've been asked that before, and I just said, because boys are better than girls, um, and cleaner. Yeah, no, not at all. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've been asked that, and I've, I, don't, I don't know. Um, I think that there's, there may be something. Remember that the, the ritual purification was not a statement that a person had sinned because women were ritually unclean during the time of their period. They were ritually unclean after all sorts of things that happened, you know. Um, men were ritually unclean. There's lots of things that you're unclean for that's not even your fault. Um, Somebody has to move the dead body, but whoever does is now ritually unclean. So it was a way of God stipulating um, his holiness and isolating his nation from the other nations that didn't keep those things. Why he has different rules for boys and girls, I don't know. I don't know. Sorry. Good. Yes, Danny. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, the first time I was asked the question, I went and looked it up, and I remember thinking, these people, there's no consensus on, on why that is. I think it's just theories. I did want to ask, um, just answer another question. Somebody uh, just asked about the word reformed. Sometimes we talk about our church being reformed Baptist, and what does that mean? Um, the word reformed in technically what it means, when it's written with a capital R, it means it comes from the, the theology that was clarified at during the Reformation in the 1500s. Um, the Reformation was the breakaway from the Catholic Church, the, the reforming of Christianity. So that's what Reformation theology refers to. So when we say we're a Reformed Church, that means we embrace the doctrines that came out of the Reformation. What Specifically what that's referring to, it's kind of like a slang way of just saying, oh, that's a Reformed Church, a church that believe in the doctrines of grace. So total depravity of man, irresistible grace, uh, unconditional election, perseverance of the saints, limited atonement, those ideas that came out of the Reformation. So when you say, I go to Reformed Church, what people mean is, oh, that's, that's what they're talking about. And so generally, Reformed Churches would be either Presbyterian, um, Lutheran, um, or Reformed Baptist. So best of both worlds. <laughs>